Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Significance always requires making a change happen. The same thing is true with creativity. If you just grab an Etch-A-Sketch and scribble left and right and up and down, that is not creative. If the thing you build in Etch-A-Sketch, when you show it to someone else, changes their day, their point of view, their attitude, you have done creative work. So significance always requires change. And what my book is about is acknowledging the fact that every successful institution going forward is not going to be a steady state managed cog in the machine. It is going to be an institution or an individual who causes change to happen. And what we need to do is not have a, like a quiet little diversion from industrialism, but have a big, deep breath and say, the reason we are here is to make a change. The purpose of this interaction is to make a change. If we can be deliberate about that, we can create significant work, whether you're a barista, an undertaker, or a stock trader. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Seth, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us for probably what is, I think, the fourth time. Such a highlight. You are generous and insightful, and I know how hard it is to show up on the regular. So thank you for making this thing. Uh, well, I, I think in many ways, you know, those adjectives describe you in a nutshell. Uh, you have a new book out, The Song of Significance. But before we get into the book, as always, I want to start with something that has nothing to do with the book. And I wanted to ask you, what is one of the most important things that you learn from one or both of your parents that have influenced and shaped who you've become and what you've ended up doing with both your life and career? I won the birthday lottery and I learned so much from my late parents and I miss them every day. Um, from my mom, I learned about giving people the benefit of the doubt. And from both of them, I learned about being part of a community. It's not a right or a privilege, it's an obligation. And when you can show up and make things better for whatever community you choose to be in, that's what you need to do. 
it's, it's interesting you bring up community of all things. I remember having this conversation with my parents probably three, four years back, and uh, they were talking about how often they see their friends. And I remember how my parents even met their friends in the 80s. Uh, we're from Andhra Pradesh, and my dad literally opened a phone book in Canada, called a Telugu person, and just said, hey, I'm new here from India. And that was the foundation of you know, 400 groups of friends that all met in Canada. But I think what struck me most when I was talking to my parents about their friends was like, wait, you guys talk to each other every day and you see each other at least twice a week. I was like, I have friends who live a mile down the, from the freeway. They don't talk to me more than once a month. Um, but I, I feel like that that sense of community that was there such a long time ago seems to be there less and less, particularly like when you talk about something like being involved in local government or anything like that. I, I'm just curious, why is that? Well, I think you're bringing up a few things that mix together. Uh, the yeah. first one is this idea that we all have way more handshakes in our lives than we did 20 or 30 or 50 years ago. That, um, you know, you don't have to go to TED very often to suddenly have a thousand people you're a handshake away from. So I think that just the simple math of it is that if it's possible to fall into a cultural connection with somebody, you don't have to see them every day to maintain that. Um, but the second point you're bringing up, which I think is critically important, gets back to this idea of the work of community, not just the enjoyment of it. And that, you know, that's part of the problem with social media is social media requires no work. It's just signaling and hand waving. The work is what happens when a friend says, my house burned down. Can I sleep in your living room for a week? Right. That mm -hmm. you are. You wouldn't have looked forward to that for either of you, but there it is and you'll take it. And I think that's a key part of being a human is seeking out connection that is going to help us extend ourselves into somebody else's life. Do you see that differing uh, across cultures? Because I think that the way you describe that, it just describes the way that my parents as immigrants kind of paved their way in Canada and then here in the U.S. as well. Oh, for sure. I mean, you know, years ago, my son was canvassing in New Hampshire. And what I noticed as I was uh, walking with him is that uh, nobody had a doorbell. And the reason was, uh, if I know you, come on in. And if I don't know you, go away. Mm. Uh, and there are plenty of cultures where the village mindset is stronger than others. And mm -hmm. the, the village mindset, you can see how that could have culturally evolved as a way of survival. Um, but if it's built in, if the philanthropy model is we go into the alms room, if you have money, you leave money. If you need money, you take money. There are plenty of places where that wouldn't work, plenty of cultures where that wouldn't work. But there are other cultures where that's normal. Mm -hmm. I remember uh, David Letterman had Malala as a guest and she was talking about how in the area of Afghanistan where she lived, she said, yeah, people are welcome anytime and they are free to stay as long as they want. And Letterman asked her, are you telling me that if my family and I showed up at your house, we could stay for a week? She's like, yes, of course. And serving tea would be considered rude. She's like, we would serve you a full meal, which I, I thought was so striking. Exactly. And I think if he showed up with that beard, I might not let him in. But in general... <laughs> That the, the philosophy, you know, I grew up in a house full of uh, Russian refuseniks, people who had uh, fled the old Soviet Union. Um, it was normal uh, for my family to adopt some Ukrainian refugees. This is what we do for each other. 
but industrial indoctrination has pushed us apart because it's easier to sell stuff to people if everyone is a stranger. Yeah, absolutely. Well, speaking of which, you know, one thing that you said to me in a previous conversation was that you usually don't write a book until you're on an idea that you just can't let go. Uh, so what was the, the motivation for this book? Why now? After, I think, five years, because I think the, if I remember correctly, your last book was the one about creativity. Yeah, that was, a, that was right around the beginning of the pandemic. It's not that I couldn't let this one go. It's this one wouldn't let me go. Uh, it began when I saw the hijinks of a billionaire who decided it would be fun in public to start humiliating and firing one employee after another and having people root and cheer him on for this sort of brutality. Um, then it was expanded as the reality of AI set in and we saw the enormous turnover at Amazon where people had horrible jobs and wouldn't stay and amplified by quiet quitting and work from home and bosses wanting people to FaceTime. Then I met somebody uh, who invited me to a conference on the climate and the way he was present for his family and the, the tragedy that he endured. And just coming back to why are we even here? What are all these hours for? That how is it that in the countries with the highest average income, people seem to work the largest number of hours and like them the least? And mm -hmm. I knew it wasn't a blog post or five blog posts or a podcast. I knew I needed to make a book so that people would have the conversation. And that's part yeah. of the magic of books that, you know, as, as wonderful as the podcast is and as transportable as it is, it's hard to hand someone a podcast and say, let's talk about this tomorrow. But mm -hmm. books are sort of organized around that idea. You're talking to a guy who's built a podcast for 13 years and doesn't listen to them. So I can relate. <laughs> uh, well, you know where I want to start actually with this whole idea of significance is by talking about education. And I want to bring back a clip uh, from you in one of our previous episodes as our jump off point. Take a listen. School was invented, as you and I have previously discussed, to train factory workers to get ready to go do a job. And there are no good jobs like that anymore. What we need are people, is it your cousin? We need, yeah. we need people like your cousin who are going to figure out what the question is. Never mind, look up the answer. And that takes learning. You learn to ride a bike, you learn to walk, you learn to juggle, you learn to do everything in your life that's important. Education is reserved for this very thin slice of certification and credentialing. And I'm just like, we have this best, this moment here where we can take a deep breath and say, you know what? Access to information is now free anywhere in the world. If you have a phone, you have access. What are we going to do with it? So I wanted to bring that back because I, I always enjoy talking to you about education and I seem to always want to talk to anybody about education. But, you know, when we're talking about work, I think education is in a lot of ways the precursor to work for so many people. So what needs to change? Because I remember you and I talking about this and you were saying the parents were really the ones that had the power of change. And I know you wrote Stop Stealing Dreams, which is probably one of my favorite essay collections that you wrote. But talk to me about the sort of education system, the context of this new book. Let's talk about indoctrination for a minute. Um, indoctrination is what happens when a powerful system brainwashes people 
to believe things that are against their interests. And industrialism has indoctrinated us from the age of four to ask, will this be on the test? How do I get an A? How do I get picked? Those three questions over and over again. And we took it, we accepted it because it also made us rich around the world. There are more people with more resources than ever before. Everyone listening to this has more resources than the last King of France did. And so we said, all right, we'll take that deal. But now the deal is broken because AI can replace anybody who's doing mediocre work. And we've been pushed to do mediocre work. So when people like you or I show up and reveal that the emperor really isn't wearing the clothes, most people will find a way to ignore us or disagree with us because the indoctrination is so powerful. And what I keep finding in the projects I do and the people I meet is there are outliers who are eager and ready to do significant work. And the vast majority of people are asking, will this be on the test? How can I get home in time to watch Netflix? Mm -hmm. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Life is full of what-ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. 
As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. So what do you think it is that separates a person who looks at the resources they have and can be incredibly resourceful with them versus the one who sees the resources they have and still looks at it from a standpoint of scarcity. Because I always felt that resourcefulness would be far more valuable to me than having resources. So I'll give you a simple example. I, I, I had written about this somewhere. I said, okay, if I had two options, somebody would give me a million dollars today or somebody over the next year taught me how to make a million dollars, I would take the second deal because that would mean that I would actually learn the skill of making the million dollars. Yeah. I mean, if it was possible to teach people that skill, uh, yeah. that would be a good deal. You know, the thing that I discovered, I spent the last year as a volunteer, 10 hours a day for a year and a half, organizing and coordinating the Carbon Almanac. It's a 97,000 word book written by 300 volunteers in 40 countries. N very few of us had ever met before. None of us met in person, not once, to make this book. We built the book, illustrated the book, designed the book, proofread it, fact-checked it, and footnoted it, and delivered it ahead of schedule in five months, which would have been impossible 10 years ago and couldn't have been done by a tiny team of paid humans. This was the way it needed to be done. But what was fascinating about it, among many other things, is some of the people I invited to do it, who had just as much spare time as the ones who leaned into it said, yeah, I just, I don't like the structure. I need someone to tell me exactly what to do. So high performers in the old days could be high performers simply because they waited to get picked and waited for instruction. And there were people on our team who were 90 and there were people on our team who were 17. It's not about age. It's not about country or income level. It was simply about have you developed the instinct and the skill to work with a clean sheet of paper? And I know you're fascinated by ChatGPT and the rest of the AI tools. What's fascinating to me is even though they're available to everybody with an internet connection for free, only 1% of the population is doing productive experiments with it and everybody else is just going back to watching TV. Yeah, I mean, I've probably done hundreds of experiments with it in the last few weeks enough to publish an entire book about it um because speaking of AI, I, i'd like to hear your perspective on this in my mind what i realize is that what this is going to enable us to do is do what we do best the things that only humans can do well which are critical thinking curiosity creativity and ai it just enables us to do those things better and faster eliminating a lot of the tedious work uh, which to your point, if you're mediocre at what you do, then I think you should be concerned. But I, I want to hear your perspective. Like, how will this shape the future, of, particularly when we talk about this idea of being significant? It's very tricky to talk about what humans do best. 
um, because by population, by per capita headcount, what humans do best is follow instructions and sign up to be cogs in the industrial machine. Uh, I did some work with D-Light years ago with Acumen, and we were in a little village uh, in India that had no electricity. And perhaps four families had bought these solar lanterns, even though the solar lantern was cheaper, safer, more reliable than kerosene and could charge your, your cell phone, paid for itself in 90 days. So I spent time talking to the four families that had purchased one, and I spent time talking to families that didn't purchase one. And this attitude keeps coming up, and AI is going to be the same deal, that most people who are spamming you and me are just following a playbook. Most people who get paid to be copywriters are just following a playbook. They're going to lose their jobs to AI for sure. And then mm -hmm. they'll find something else to do, a different playbook that someone else invented. And in this moment, which hasn't been going on for very long, what you have pointed out, what I've pointed out, is when they shuffle the deck and the world changes, this is the moment to stop following somebody else's playbook. And, you know, what people, I had the folks at Eleven Labs train the AI in my voice. It's so good. My wife cannot tell it's not me. <laughs> and I, yeah. did an, I did an episode of my podcast with it reading, pretending to be me. And almost none of my listeners figured it out until I gave it away at the end. Now, wow. given that I can now speak for as many hours a day as there are CPUs, if I wanted to run with that, the amount of things I could do with that are enormous. And so yeah. can everyone else. But once it's baked in, then people won't be able to run with it. They're just going to have to be a clerk who's working for someone who figured out what to do. You know, I think that the, the thing that became very apparent to me as I started to experiment with all of these tools was I thought to myself, wait a minute, Adam Smith in the Industrial and the Wealth of Nations said division of labor is the key to maximizing output. And I remember thinking, wait a minute, but labor is prohibitively expensive. And suddenly the things that were only accessible to people with deep pockets and, you know, enormous resources are now available to the masses. And you thought is like, what are you going to do with this? Like, this is amazing. It's like you've been handed the power of hundreds of people all in your hands. I mean, I, I can produce exponentially higher amounts of work. And, you know, it still doesn't take away from the fact that I'm still, you know, it still depends on a human. Like I remember one of my cousins told me this when we were having a conversation, which made it into my new book. He said, it's at the end of the day, it's still 50% human input. Like you are the one who puts in every prompt and trains these things. Yeah. So Adam Smith and Karl Marx, the fascinating thing that happened was Adam Smith said, uh, a pin making machine can replace the work of dozens of pin makers. So if you're a pin maker, you're in real trouble. You better go buy a pin making machine. And Karl Marx said, until workers own the means of production, they will be taken advantage of. Well, mm -hmm. going back to Steve Wozniak, we started handing workers the means of production. And now, in 2023, the means of production come for free if you just have an internet connection. You have exactly the same tools as the CEO of Adobe. You have exactly the same tools as the president of a small country. So... Now that workers own the means of production, what will they choose to produce? Mm -hmm. And the problem with the indoctrination, and I spend a lot of time coaching high school and college kids, 
is they are petrified of improv and they have been so pushed to get a degree from a famous institution and to get a job that their friends think is cool that most of them are blinking in the moment when they should be paying attention. Well, speaking of what you say in the book that we built massive systems designed to produce goods and services beyond imagination while we simultaneously market enough insufficiency and jealousy to sell them. And I want to talk about this from two perspectives when we talk about this idea of significance on the individual level. Like, what is it that enables somebody to become significant in an organization or on an individual level, whether it's in their community or just through their creative work? And how do you even define what it means to be significant? This is a great question, and it gets back to your work in creativity. Um, the thing is, it's not up to me, it's up to each of us. I interviewed 10,000 people in 90 countries, and I gave them a whole bunch of choices about what was the best job they ever had like. And they all picked the same four or five things, and it comes down to, I accomplished more than I thought I could. People treated me with respect. And the work I did mattered. And these are significant choices. Significance always requires making a change happen. And the same thing is true with creativity. If you just grab an Etch-a-Sketch and scribble left and right and up and down, that is not creative. But if the thing you build in Etch-a-Sketch, when you show it to someone else, changes their day, their point of view, their attitude, you have done creative work. So significance always requires change. And what my book is about is acknowledging the fact that every successful institution going forward is not going to be a steady state managed cog in the machine. It is going to be an institution or an individual who causes change to happen. And what we need to do is not have a, like a quiet little diversion from industrialism but have a big, deep breath and say, the reason we are here is to make a change. The purpose of this interaction is to make a change. If we can be deliberate about that, we can create significant work, whether you're a barista, an undertaker, or a stock trader. Well, you say that agency gives us control over our time and it encourages, to choose our, encourages us to choose our own adventure because it demands responsibility and some authority Agency is antithetical to controlled industrial piecework. And it, it got me thinking about my time in organizations. And keep in mind, I haven't been in a formal organization for 10 years other than the one that I run. So, yeah, I get mm -hmm. to do what I want. I have plenty of agency. But I felt like part of my issue with it was that I'm pretty much just being told to follow instructions and anything that is out of the so-called playbook basically will get me punished. So, and I know that there are places like this still where people... Because I've had people literally come to me and say, you know, I love your work, but how do I, how can I be creative at work? I can't be creative at work. I work at a law firm or, I, you know, I do something that has no creativity in it, which I, I don't believe is true, but I think largely is, you know, part of this mindset. So, you know, when people feel like they're trapped in an organization like that, what is the, the option here to leave or to change it? And how do they do that without getting themselves fired? Right. Okay. So the first thing about creativity is it comes with responsibility. You're not off the hook. You're not allowed to say, I was just being authentically creative. Don't criticize me. That's not what creative is. Creative is to see a problem, 
earn enrollment from the people who have the problem and then work with them to solve the problem. So if I was working at a company or an organization that was very, very clear that they did not want anyone on the factory floor at the warehouse in Akron, uh, Amazon, to take any initiative whatsoever, if that was really clear, I would leave. You don't get tomorrow over again. Go somewhere else. But if I was a fancy lawyer, instead of whining about the fact that I'm a lawyer and I can't be creative, I would look at the fact that just about every happy and successful lawyer has done something that some of their partners raised an eyebrow at at the beginning. So if I was at a law firm, I'd start writing, for example, articles about the legality of, I don't know, copyright in AI or the legality of taxation in NFT until I was seen as a leader on that frontier. And if I wrote good, creative, thoughtful articles about that, it wouldn't take very long. And then once I'm seen as the high-status leader on that frontier, my day will be filled with interesting work, not doing the will for the next old person who walks in the door. And that's available to anybody who's got a legal license. So it's not hard to overcome. It's just scary. Because Mm -hmm. to be creative means you're putting yourself on the hook. To say, I'm selling tickets to this event and I will sing a song that will make you cry. Well, if you don't, you failed. So this is the difficult work of being creative. And again, Mm -hmm. it has nothing to do with the scale of what you're doing. It has to do with the emotion and intent of what you're doing. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible Berry Chantilly Cake and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Let's talk about this idea of intent because I know one of the things that you have written about and I've heard you say it, I'm maybe you've even said it to me in an interview, is that you always say before you start anything, this might not work. And I have pretty much adopted that and I've realized it's actually incredibly liberating but it's kind of a paradox. People are like, wait a minute, you think the benefits of believing that you might fail increase the odds of success? I'm like, yes, because you're not attached to the outcome. But talk to me about that idea of this might not work and how we can, people who are listening to this can actually start to make that part of the way they think about all of this. Okay, so before I forget, I want to talk about something you said as an aside just now, which is attached to the outcome. And I think you and I talked about this when we were talking about the practice. I have the clip from it last time. Uh, do you want me to say it again or do you want to play the clip? Well, let's play the clip. Just, uh, you know. All right, let's see if I read your mind and got it right. I'm pretty sure you did. Uh, but yeah, here we go. We were indoctrinated and brainwashed into wanting a map. Why did that happen? It happened because map makers need customers. And so from the time that we're in first grade, it becomes very clear that the way to move forward is to comply. And the way to comply is to do what the teacher says so you do well on the test. And parents have been brainwashed into thinking that they are defective if they have kids who aren't part of the same system. And there are certain places where this attachment to results is really important. So if you're a mechanical engineer, civil engineer, and you're building a bridge, the only thing I care about is does the bridge fall down? Yeah. Right? But most of us don't do that work. And getting attached to an outcome that is out of our control actually undermines our work. And so let's start off there as a jump off point. 
right? So when you get attached to an outcome, what you're doing is you're using all the force of will to somehow, uh, through telekinesis, uh, cause something outside of your control to change. And that is exhausting. And it's also ineffective. That if you and I are swimming across the Hudson River, we could become attached to each other by six-foot ropes and we will both drown. On the other hand, if I'm watching you swim while I swim, I can stay near you. That's up to me, but I'm not attached to that. And if we're going to do creative work and we need, desperately need somebody else to get the joke, we will fail to tell a good joke because we will compromise, we will imagine, we will uh, basically suffocate our creativity. When you say this might not work, but add to it the generosity of I am doing this in service of solving an interesting problem, right? That fusion power is just a series of engineering exercises of what might not work until finally we find out what does work. And you don't have to be working on saving the planet. You can work on a very small problem for a very small situation, right? That a four-year-old has walked into the doctor's office and in this moment, you want to change this four-year-old's affect. You can say something to this kid, something you're not sure is going to work, that is way more likely to work than if you just read a script out of a book. So one of the other things you say is that tools can create efficiency, but value can only come from change, from humanity, and from the rare form of connection that comes with significance. It's the emotional labor of showing up because we care. The opportunity for all of us lies in the emotional labor invested by enrolled and committed employees who seek to make a difference. That's the competitive advantage that extraordinary organizations produce. So how does somebody design an organization to fill it with those types of people? And I remember you make this very clear distinction between leaders and managers as well. Okay. Emotional labor. Uh, Errol Hochschild first used that term 60 years ago. I am using it slightly differently. We know what physical labor is. And if you want to build an institution where people do physical labor, you know exactly how to do that. Right? You say there's 100 bags of concrete over here. We need to end up with those bags over there. Please move them. And you can measure whether people are doing physical labor or not. Emotional labor is doing work we don't feel like. It might involve smiling when we don't feel like smiling, but it also might involve digging deep and creating when we're afraid. Emotional labor is the work of using our emotions. It's developing our real skills. It's showing up with honesty and loyalty and integrity and care and all the things that are exhausting. And once you say it like that, building an organization that seeks that out and rewards that isn't particularly difficult. You just have to measure correct proxies, not false proxies. Mm -hmm. If I'm running a restaurant, if all I'm measuring is, did you bring the food to the table before it got cold? I'm not measuring what the diner is actually keeping track of and why the diner showed up at the restaurant to begin with. But if you changed the mood and affect of the group that is paying $400 to eat dinner here tonight, if you created the environment for them to have the best night out they've had in three months, that took emotional labor. So let's do that on purpose. Um, and then there was a the second half of your question, but I was so present with the first half, I forget. I think I forgot as well. Um, we'll, we'll get back to it. I'm sure it'll come to me. Uh, 
One thing that you talk about is these four kinds of work and these two by two grid with stakes and trust as the two axes. Can you expand on that and explain how that plays a role in the idea of significant work? Okay, so it's a little hard to visualize, but we will try using the magic of radio. Um, there's surveillance and there is trust. Surveillance is important for certain things that we purchase. So if you go and buy five pounds of flour at the supermarket, your expectation is that that item has been under surveillance since it was first created, that machines have been measuring to make sure there's no metal screws in it, that strangers have touched it along the way, but it's unadulterated, that when we are in a situation where the stakes are high, but trust is low, we use surveillance to figure it out. At the other extreme, our high trust, low stakes thing. This is when we walk in to the community center or place we go often, and we're probably not going to die from that cup of coffee if it's not perfect. And our relationship with the barista, having someone know our name, walking into a place where we feel comfortable, it's all worth it. And then, as you can imagine, there are two other corners. There is the um, things where we have surveillance, but the stakes are low. And this is what happens if you go to hear classical music performed, in that we are insisting that people play it as written. We know it's exactly the way it was supposed to sound. Now, the magic of Glenn Gould, since you're Canadian, I have to bring up Glenn Gould, is he did the Brandenburg concertos as his first recording and as his last recording. And they're not the same. Because, in fact, trusting Glenn Gould to do a, use emotional labor to express what's in his heart via Bach and a piano is the magic of it. And there is a difference between someone or an AI playing Bach and Glenn Gould playing Bach because we didn't use surveillance. We used trust. And then in the, I can go into the other corner, but you get the idea. What we seek as we try to find significant work is please don't put us in solitary confinement. And please don't put us under surveillance because those two things are enervating and are dead ends. What we want is to be trusted as we do human work, work that might not work, creative work, and do it for someone who wants a change to happen. That can be lots of different kinds of jobs, but we've got to seek it out and maintain the fact that we earned it. It was funny when you mentioned that um, you may have heard it. Uh, the Canadian Brass did a uh, rendition of the Flight of the Bumblebee. I played the tuba for nine years and Charles Dallenbach plays the Flight of the Bumblebee on a tuba. And you're thinking, <laughs> wow, how the hell is that possible? It's the craziest thing you've ever heard. It sounds insane. Well, um, in the audiobook, which I produced myself, yeah. um, I have the Flight of the Bumblebee in several locations because I found a, a, a CC licensed version. And I'm confident that there were no tubas involved. So as soon as we're done, I'm going to go look that <laughs> one up. Yeah, you'll have to. I think you'll get a kick out of it. Uh, I remember the, the, the follow-up question to, uh, to, to our previous uh, section. So you make this distinction between management and leadership, but you also oh, right. talk about job interviews as false proxies. So talk to me about that, because I've always thought that job interviews are, are kind of BS. Like I remember very distinctly, uh, I had learned how to, do really well at interviews. I was always terrible at the job. 
but I mastered being interviewed because there was a book like you literally I don't even remember what the, the there's a company that made like a guide where like here are all the questions you'll be asked in an investment banking interview or here's yeah. how you answer you know the interviewer's question I was like okay I've just basically mastered performance but it's all an act like I realized I would have been better off telling half these people you know what I actually think I would hate working here um, which I didn't have the courage to do that I would now yeah well I mean it's not that different than tinder right um, so Managers use power and authority to get people to do what they did yesterday, but faster and cheaper. We need managers at places like fast food restaurants at high surveillance locations. Leaders are voluntary. You could be the lowest rank on the org chart or the highest, doesn't matter. Leaders are showing up saying, I'm not sure this is going to work. I'm going over there. Who wants to come? And just because you're a manager doesn't mean you're a leader and vice versa. With that said, when we seek to add people to the team, we tend to look for easy digital ways to measure things. The problem, as we learned in Moneyball, is that these proxies, if they are incorrect, get us into trouble. So in the United States, the average height of the president keeps rising dramatically, even though there's no evidence that tall people are good at being the leader of the free world. Yeah. And we use caste and we use social status and we use whether there's typos in your, in your resume. We use whether you went to a famous college, all as false proxies. The fact that you went to McGill doesn't mean you're going to end up being a better, I don't know, chiropractor or accountant than someone who didn't, but it's easy to measure. And when we have job interviews, what we're generally doing is measuring whether someone is good at job interviews. Why is that a useful proxy? Finding out if this is the sort of person you'd like to hang out with, well, mostly what you're going to do is hire people like you or hire people who look like the CEO, which again, creates barriers for people who aren't part of the dominant class or caste. And as a result, it's really expensive because we've dramatically reduced the size of the pool that we are able to work with. And the alternative to false proxies is simple. Measure the right stuff. Measure the important stuff. If you want to hire a receptionist at your medical practice who makes people feel welcome, well, why don't you just hire people who make people feel welcome? Seems pretty simple. It's just hard. And Mm -hmm. one of the things that's possible now, thanks to the magic of the trail we leave behind, is to be judged on our work not on our resume, that it is easier than ever to create a body of work and to share that with folks. It is easier than ever to say to somebody, I will pay you to come in on Saturday and be the receptionist. Let's see what you do when you do the job for a day, as opposed to me saying, wow, you're you're very charismatic in the job interview. You're hired because I learned nothing from that. No. Well, I mean, I, I had a community manager when I hired her her first response was, Sringa, I don't need a job and I'm a civil engineer. I don't know anything about building communities. I was like, well, if you can build a bridge, you can build a community. You're smart and you know how to solve problems. And I've seen it. So we'll figure it out. And that was by far the best hiring decision I've ever made. I would say that what you hired for was enrollment in the journey, not a skill set. Yeah. And what this person did as a skill previously was not nearly as important as their willingness 
to embrace new skills and not become attached to the person they used to be. That is so true. I see that with so many people. They they don't realize they have transferable skills, but they also aren't willing to take on new things. Uh, so how then do organizations begin to change their culture in order to embrace this mindset of significance and give people the freedom to do this? So Harvard asked me to come give a talk at the business school, and they changed the title of my talk to Seth Godin on how to make people feel significant. And this broke my heart because it's so classic big company. Like, we're not going to change being industrialists. We just want people to feel like they get to be humans when they're here. That's the opposite of what I'm describing. You know, what Satya Nadella has figured out is that productivity measurements are usually a trap. That if you're going to start counting lines of code committed to GitHub, well, then people are going to start committing lousy lines of code. If you start instead measuring the right stuff and realize that you're in the change business, you are no longer in the industrial business. So Steve Ballmer missed four of the most important breakthroughs in the tech world over a 10-year period of time. He left, I don't know, $100 billion in value on the table because all he wanted to do was build an industrial ratchet where he could increase his power as opposed to saying, I want to build an institution that explores and experiments and discovers. Because they had so much of a head start. They could have owned search and they could have owned smartphones, et cetera, et cetera. But because they couldn't industrialize their way into it, they failed and they failed and they failed because he tried to bully his way through it. So what yeah. my rant is about is organizations that sooner or later are going to disappear as industrialists, waking up before it's too late and say, let's not try to put a significant uh, stucco layer on top of our industrial heart. Let's get right down to the center of what we do and realize that if each person here is doing significant work, our institution will become resilient and significant. It reminds me of, of something that I had uh, Ozan Barul say to me in our conversation about his most recent book. And it was this whole idea. A terrific of, book, by the way. Yes, it is a fantastic book. I uh, absolutely loved it. And he talks about this idea in his previous book. He talked about not being able to copy and paste someone else's path to success. But in this one, he also said you can't copy and paste your previous path to success, what I thought was really fascinating because I, I've seen that tendency in myself. It's like, oh, this blog post went viral. How do I reverse engineer that and try to do that again? Or, you know, the way I wrote this book worked really well. How do I do it again? And I realized, like, we become victims of our own success. I remember that there was even a term for it in this book called the both and thinking, where they called it the S-curve paradox of success or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, like, let's just use Google as an example and the fact that they seem to be playing catch up um, with OpenAI. Like, I think it's the first time in the existence of Google that we've seen something that look, you know, on the surface might look like an existential threat. How do people and organizations um, prevent themselves from becoming victims of their own success, I guess, is really what I'm trying to say. The hard work is to burn your boats at the very same time you don't become dependent on staying wherever you landed. And to do both of those things at the same time is really challenging. So it took me decades before permission marketing 
came out and became a bestseller. So when the phone rings and they say, we'd like to pay you twice as much to write the permission marketing handbook. And then after that, the beginner's guide to permission marketing. And then after that, well, maybe I'll start MailChimp. Well, I knew how to do all of those things, but I didn't do any of them. It probably cost me, you know, money net present value wise to turn those things down. But by turning them down, I created the conditions where Purple Cow was possible. And so what an organization has to do, Western Union has to say, the Telegraph is not going to live forever. How are we going to take the people on our team who want to explore the liminal state of between here and there and have them go build the telephone? So when I was at Yahoo, it was 1999. They were the center of the internet. The internet was the center of our future. I was one of five vice presidents and I went to Jerry Yang and I said, Jerry, here's what I want to do. I'd like you to cut my salary by 90%. I would be happy to keep my stock options. I'm going to take two people. I'm going to go across the street to a $600 a month room and we're going to build the business plan of the next five companies that you're probably going to go acquire for $5 billion each if we don't. And Jerry turned to me and he said, well, that sounds great, except everyone here would want to go do that, which is the stupidest excuse in the history of the internet to have your company fade away to nothing. Because they had exactly what they needed in-house to build the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. But instead they said, what we do around here is turn the crank of what we did yesterday. I want to finish with two final questions. I know you got to go and share. Like, this is something I've heard myself say to people a hundred times when I describe your writing. And I always say the genius of Seth Godin is that he manages to say so much with so few words. And that is an art that I have aspired to. So I'm just curious, like, where does that come from? And like, is that just years and years of practice that leads to that? I'm so tempted to give you a super cogent answer. I know you are. Yeah. Okay. So I'm working uh, with my friend Ava on this very question. Uh, A koan is a Buddhist riddle that enables actual learning to happen because all learning is self-learning. Autodidactism is all there is. Education is different, but learning sooner or later, if it's actual learning, you're going to teach it to yourself. So if somebody says, "Why? when will a dog reach enlightenment? And the monk says, uh, emptiness, that's a riddle. And you can think about it for a really long time and get the punchline, maybe. So what I have worked to do in my work is in front of other people, watching how their eyes light up, seeing if something sinks in, reading my email to see which parts people highlight and not highlight when they write back to me. I'm looking for the zinger. I'm looking for the anecdote or the sentence or even the word like remarkable or significance that gets under somebody's skin so that they can then do the incredibly difficult work of figuring out and learning what maybe I tried, but sometimes I learned something that I didn't even intend. And it's so much easier to just use more words 
and define deniability because you have so many words. But my work is not to do that. My work is to maybe be misunderstood, but often open the door for someone to learn something they wanted to learn. Well, um, I have one final question for you, which I know I've asked you before. So I'm always interested in hearing how people answer this question when they come back to the show. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Well, ever since I heard of you and your work, that word has really stuck with me. And in this age of AI, how could it be more important? That when I trained an AI on the 8,000 blog posts that I have on my blog, I was pleased that it didn't sound exactly like me yet because it meant I still have some blogging left to do. But my voice in 11 Labs is not unmistakably me. It's hard to tell. So what it means to be an unmistakable creative is pretty simple, which is you are generous enough to reach far enough outside whatever boat you're on that you are causing a change to happen that pretty much could only be done by you. and. That's frightening work indeed, particularly when mediocrity is so simple and so attainable these days. And, you know, one thing I did not expect when I started on the internet in 1976 and when I started doing it professionally in 1991, I didn't expect so much anger and division, but I also didn't expect so many people would work so hard to make it banal, but they do. And what it means to be unmistakable is refuse banality. Beautiful. Uh, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us as always and share your story and wisdom and your insights with our listeners. Where can people find out uh, more about the book uh, and everything else you're up to? I mean, at this point, I think, you know, unless they've been on the moon for the last 20 years, it's pretty easy to find you. Uh, I built a page at seths.blog slash song. And on it, I've got videos and limited edition stuff and specials and everything else. So everything you need, Seth.blog slash S-O-N-G. Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A malibu.com, code GLOW. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.